thanks very much for the invitation to come and speak today. Um, so I'm going to be talking mostly about um, obstructed labour and how this might relate to evolutionary perspectives, um, including the obstetric dilemma, and um, what implications an evolutionary perspective might have for how we deal with the problem of obstructed labour. Uh, this is largely based on a book chapter that I've written for Alex's book that um, I've co-authored with Jonathan Wells and Jay Stock. And I have to point out that actually um, a lot of what I'll be talking about has its origins in a paper that they published in 2012. Um, but the slides and the presentation I'll give today is kind of my take on that, but I wanted to acknowledge the work that they did um, that came before uh, when I got involved. So, to give you an idea of where I'm going to go with the talk, I'm going to start off talking briefly about the process of labour itself, to give you some background um, and understanding that's relevant to understanding both the obstetric dilemma, but then also um, the problem of obstructed labour. Then I'm going to briefly review some of the evidence um, regarding the classic obstetric dilemma, because if we accept that obstructed labour arises from the obstetric dilemma, then our options for treating it are actually rather limited. Um, but if we find problems with the obstetric dilemma, then that might suggest that there are other solutions we could explore. So following that, I'm going to look at um, a sort of new understanding that's developing of the obstetric dilemma, that it's a rather a fixed um, dilemma, a very variable one that's ecologically contingent. And finally then, just consider um, consider the implications that this kind of perspective um, might have for treating obstructive labour. So just to run you very quickly um, through the labour process, uh, the first stage of labour um, is when the cervix dilates. And this is very variable in how long it takes. Um, it can be between 16 and 20 hours in the case of first birth, or between 2 and 10 hours um, in the case of subsequent birth. And this phase is typically um, divided into three. So the first is the latent phase, when contractions begin um, and the cervix begins to dilate. The active phase is when the contractions become stronger um, and more frequent, and the cervix dilates even further, getting towards what we consider full dilation, which is around 10 centimetres. And then a transitional phase um, between stage one and stage two, when the cervix is pretty much fully dilated and um, the mother feels the urge to push. The second stage of labour is the delivery of um, the baby itself. Again, very variable. It can last from 10 minutes to up to um, two hours. Typically, in the last weeks of pregnancy, um, the baby's head becomes engaged, so it comes into a position with its head <coughs> downwards. So typically the head is, um, proceeds first, followed by the shoulders, and then the rest of the body and the umbilical cord. And then finally, the third stage is the delivery of the afterbirth, which can happen sort of within an hour um, after the end of stage two. Humans have a slightly unusual um, process of birth, something known as rotational birth. So uh, as the baby progresses through the maternal pelvis, um, the upper part of the pelvis, so this is a, a section through the pelvis, uh, the upper part of the pelvis, the fourth pelvis, so this is um, here where the iliac blades are, these parts here, um, 
doesn't usually present many problems. It's when the bake has to pass through what's um, sometimes termed the true pelvis or the maternal pelvic canal that the fit between the baby's head and the mother's pelvis becomes much tighter. Uh, so what's also important to note about the human pelvis is that the axis along which the um, opening is greatest changes as you move from the inlet through the midplane to the outlet. So at the inlet, it's in a transverse direction, whereas um, by the outlet, it's in an anteroposterior direction. In great apes such as chimpanzees, which is illustrated here, this is a view of the pelvis um, from inferior and of the baby's head emerging. Um, what you can see is actually there's quite a lot of space in the birth canal and it's widest anteroposteriorly and the baby can pass through relatively easily. Whereas in humans, it's quite clear that there's a fairly tight fit between the baby's head and the maternal pelvis. And that in order to line up the longest axis of the baby's head with the most space in the maternal pelvis, the baby actually has to rotate um, as it passes through the birth canal. And this happens both with the head, but then subsequently um, with the shoulders as well. And as I hope you know, the obstetric dilemma is a theory that um, suggests that this tight fit between the baby's head and the maternal pelvis um, and certain other characteristics of human birth, the fact that um, we quite often have birth attendants and that it takes um, quite a long time, are related to two sort of um, counteracting forces that have put opposing selective pressures on the pelvis. So the first one being selection for bipedal locomotor efficiency. Uh, and the argument is that a narrower pelvis gives you more efficient um, locomotion in a bipedal stance. Versus the um, selective pressures associated with encephalization, so having a larger brain, um, which obviously would favor a larger pelvic um, canal for the large brain baby to pass through. So since the 1950s, um, this has been discussed as the origins of some of the obstetrical problems that we see in our species. So Krogman um, termed this one of the scars of human evolution um, and said that many obstetrical problems of Mrs. H. sapiens are due to the combination of a narrow pelvis and bigger head in the species. And later, um, Washburn kind of coined the term of the obstetrical dilemma um, and again, related it to these um, antagonistic <coughs> demands of bipedal locomotion and encephalization, increased brain cells. So if we look at how the pelvis has changed over um, evolution in our species, uh, first if we look at the pelvis of one of our closest relatives, the chimpanzee, um, this is the typical kind of pelvis that we would see um, in our closest relations to the great apes. And you'll see that it's quite tall when we view it from anteriorly, from the front. But looking above, quite a wide, spacious um, birth canal. However, once bipedalism starts to evolve, for example, um, with Australopithecus afarensis, which is shown here, walking next to um, a modern human. So Australopithecus afarensis dates to around 3.2 million years ago, but we can see clear evidence of bipedalism and adaptation for bipedalism going back to over 4 million years ago, um, we see some clear change in the pelvis. It becomes 
shorter, more bone-like to help support the organs and reorientate the muscles of the hips. And we see anteroposterior contraction of the pelvic canal. And this is something that, although pelvic shape continues to change, basically these similar characteristics are maintained um, into humans. So it's thought um, that once a real commitment to bipedalism has evolved, um, that this again necessitated changes in the birth process itself. So we're looking back at the same figure of the um, progression of the baby's head through the maternal pelvic canal. And what you'll see is that in Australopithecus, there's already, because of this anteroposterior contraction, the need for the rotation of the baby's head in order to pass through the um, birth canal. But encephalization actually comes much later in human evolution. It happens most strongly and perhaps in the last million years. And so that's when we kind of reach the situation that we have in contemporary humans with this very tight fit between um, head and pelvic canal size. So having introduced you to the labour process and the ideas behind the obstructive dilemma, I now want to talk briefly about um, obstructed labour. Obstructed labour is basically the failure of labour to progress due to mechanical problems. And this can take a variety of forms. Um, some of the most important ones for us uh, today are cephalopelvic disproportion. So this is where the baby's head is too large to pass through the paternal pelvic canal. But also shoulder dystocia. So this is illustrated here, where the baby's shoulder becomes trapped most commonly behind um, the pubic bone of the mother, but sometimes also behind the sacrum. Obstructive labour can also come about through malpresentation. So if the baby is lying, um, not with its head engaged, head down, this can cause um, difficulties for labour too. Uh, some of these can be dealt with um, and identified before labour actually commences um, to help uh, move the baby into a position that's more appropriate for um, an easier birth. And this can include things like um, breech presentation um, and when the baby, say, has an arm up over its head and that can lead to um, compound malpresentation. So the risks associated with obstructive labour are very serious. Uh, at the very least, these can be things like dehydration and exhaustion for the mother um, due to a very prolonged labour. Um, it can lead to hemorrhage due to um, damage to the mother's internal organs, but also problems such as uterine rupture, fistula, so this is when there's a split and the uterus or the um, vagina become connected with either the um, bladder or the rectum, and there's movement between the two. Um, stress incontinence, sepsis, problems with subsequent um, pregnancies and births, and even maternal death. Um, this was particularly the case in the past if there was no medical in intervention and the baby really was too big or got stuck in the pelvic canal, then that would usually mean death for the baby and mother. Consequences of the baby are also um, significant. It can be exhaustion. Um, if the baby becomes stuck for too long, it can lead to asphyxia, brain damage. Uh, shoulder dystocia can lead to damage to the muscles and nerves, so brachial plexus palsy. Um, and also stillbirth and neonatal death. In terms of the burden of obstructive labour, um, this is still significant in the contemporary world. 
so considering first maternal mortality more broadly, um, it's estimated that 830 women die daily from preventable causes related to pregnancy and childbirth, and that 99% of these deaths occur in developing countries, especially in areas that are rural or in poorer communities, presumably because healthcare um, is poorer. And so the WHO have made it one of their goals um, for sustainable development agenda to reduce maternal mortality. Looking at the contribution of obstructed labour to maternal mortality rates, what these pie charts show is um, maternal deaths um, by cause in Africa, in Asia, Latin American, Caribbean, and in developed countries. And in terms of obstructed labour, we're particularly interested in this kind of light blue um, segment that I've put a red star on. You can see that in developed countries, it's not a huge problem, and that's probably because most women with obstructed labour um, get a caesarean section. However, the risk is much higher in other countries, and it accounts for between 4% of deaths in Africa to up to 13% of maternal deaths in Latin America and the Caribbean. It's also worth noting that with these kind of aggregate data, the way that maternal deaths are categorised um, is not necessarily that straightforward and can vary between different places. So it's perfectly possible that some of these deaths attributed to haemorrhage, which is in the light blue here, are actually haemorrhages secondary to um, obstructions during labour. So this is still a significant problem in the contemporary world. In thinking about what causes obstructed labour, uh, some people have argued that it has evolutionary origins, that basically it comes back to the obstetric dilemma. And this is just a few examples of papers that have um, posed this. If we see it as a result of the obstetric dilemma, it would suggest that really we haven't got many options as to how we solve um, the problem of obstructed labour. It's sort of an, an inevitable outcome of um, our evolutionary past. There are various ways we can intervene in obstructed labour um, in the present. This can be forceps um, or vacuum assistance or caesarean sections. Um, and while these can be successful, they're not without risk for a mother and baby. And we also have to think about availability and cost. In many rural and developing settings, actually access to these kinds of um, interventions and to appropriate medical support is very limited. Um, also, cost may be prohibitive. Even in the West, many um, healthcare systems are under financial strain and the cost of having a caesarean section is several times that of um, a natural birth. And it's also been argued that caesarean sections are actually not ideal for the mother and baby either, um, that caesareans are associated with an increased risk in the offspring of allergy and asthma, which might well relate to a lack of inoculation with um, maternal microbiota, which then help train the immune system to um, respond appropriately to different factors in the environment. But it's also associated with poor developmental outcomes, and also some studies have suggested an increased risk of postnatal depression in the mother. So as I said, if the classic obstetric dilemma is correct, these are basically our only options. However, I think we've got good grounds now to question whether this classic view of the obstetric dilemma really is um, what's causing obstructed labour. 
So I just want to briefly review some of the debates around um, the obstetric dilemma that have come about in the um, past decade or two. Um, the debates actually range much more broadly than this, and I've tried to pick out the bits that are most relevant to obstructed labour. So an important point is that empirical evidence is suggesting that actually a narrower pelvis doesn't really give you any greater bipedal efficiency. Various groups are working on this, um, including work by Anne Wall Scheffler, and she's found some very interesting results. Uh, what this graph shows is the cost of locomotion and how that's affected by um, changing various parameters, so body mass, leg length, and pelvic breadth. So an increase in body mass increases the cost of locomotion, that makes sense. Um, you've got more weight to move around. Longer legs decrease the cost of locomotion, but an increase in two centimetres of pelvic breadth has an even greater impact on decreasing the cost of locomotion, not what we might predict under the obstetric dilemma. It's, she's also shown in some of her work that um, while a narrower pelvis does decrease the cost of locomotion at optimal speed, Actually, if you deviate from that optimal speed, the penalty is greater if you have a narrower pelvis. And she points out that actually, in many cases, humans aren't walking at their own individual optimal speed. We're with other people, um, we're mothers with children. So actually, this pattern negates any small advantage of having a, a narrower pelvis. Recent work by Warren et al. as well um, has looked at the relationship between biacetabular breadth, so that's the um, distance between the hip joints, which is thought to be particularly biomechanically relevant, and the locomotor cost of um, running and walking in men and women, and found no significant relationship. There's also other evidence that actually pelvic dimensions are not necessarily under tight obstetric selection, and that other factors affect and pelvic variation, one of which might be climatic selection. Um, so various people have argued that actually body breadth and breadth of the pelvis relates to um, the climate in which you live because of rules to do with um, surface area to volume ratio. So if we model the body as a cylinder, as Christopher Ruff has proposed, um, increasing height, increasing length of the cylinder doesn't affect the surface area to volume ratio whereas increasing the width of the cylinder does and helps reduce the ratio and so reduce heat loss to the environment. And if we look at populations across the world, what we can see is that those living in cold environments, such as the Inuit, tend to have a wider and proportionally broader body than, say, sub-Saharan Africans. And looking at the data um, on by the breadth, so that's the breadth here at the top of the iliac blades, um, and how that relates to latitude in contemporary populations, we see quite a strong relationship. Whereas the relationship between height and latitude um, is not significant. So on the basis of this, we might say, well, if climate can drive pelvic variation, then surely something like obstetric risk, where the stakes in terms of evolution are very high, um, you know, we're talking about death of the mother and the baby, um, surely selection would be able to alter pelvic morphology um, in that case too. It's worth noting here that actually biliac breadth is this part of the false pelvis that I mentioned before. So 
does not necessarily relate to the size of the pelvic canal, but it does suggest some, some variability um, potential in the pelvis. Other evidence um, has also suggested that the uh, pelvis is not under tight obstetric selection. So Helen Kirk has done some very interesting work about um, pelvic dimensions, particularly in small bodied populations. So these are from the late Stone Age of South Africa, where females are typically around 1 meter 50 tall and males around 1 meter 57. And what she's found is that, um, so say for example in biliac breadth, which is the breadth here, there is a reduction compared to Western European populations. However, if we look at obstetric dimensions, so this is the anteroposterior length of the outlet, they're maintained in these small body populations. If not, so females are the bars on the left, it's actually greater than in other um, European populations of our kind of stature. So that might even suggest that there's been selection for altered shape in small body populations to maintain the size of the birth canal. There's also evidence that the um, pelvic dimensions and the bony birth canal in particular is as variable as other pelvic or limb bone dimensions and as variable in males as it is in females, which again doesn't quite fit with this idea that it's under tight obstetric selection. And finally, Epstein has pointed out that um, because we're talking about an area in relation to the pelvic outlet, in relation to um, a volume for the baby's brain size, uh, a 3% increase in the size of the mother's birth canal would permit a 10% increase in neonatal brain size. And a 3% increase is actually within the range of variation that we see in contemporary populations. So it doesn't seem to make sense that selection wouldn't have been able to increase the size of the birth canal. There's been some other interesting studies looking at how um, head size uh, and pelvic morphology co-vary with one another. Uh, and in this study, what they found was that in both females and in males, um, individuals with small heads had a different shaped pelvic pelvis than with large heads. The pelvis in um, women and men with larger heads is wider, um, sort of medialaterally here. Um, and they related this particularly to giving a greater um, diameter for the birth of a larger-headed baby. It's also been pointed out by various people that the tight fit between the baby's head and the internal pelvis uh, is not a unique human characteristic, which we might expect if the obstetric dilemma were to hold. Um, what this figure shows, the white ovals are the maternal pelvic canal size and the black ovals are the baby's head size. Um, what we can see in humans is, as I already mentioned, the anteroposterior front to back diameter of the baby's head is actually larger than the anteroposterior diameter of the pelvic inlet of the mother, which is why we get that rotation. But while other great apes have quite spacious birth canals, other primates, such as macaques, also have quite a tight fit, and yet they're neither bipeds or particularly encephalized. The example of the free-tailed bat is also another really interesting one. Um, so, in free-tailed bats, we've got a really extreme mismatch between fetal size and the maternal pelvis. 
maternal bone and pelvis is 3 to 4 millimetres in diameter, whereas the fetus is typically 15 millimetres in diameter. And this, these pictures, when I first looked at them, I thought, oh, they can't be to scale. They actually are, basically, to scale. So how on earth does that fit through there? Well, it's because the interpubic ligament stretches to 15 times its normal length during birth. Um, admittedly, the demands on the pelvis in a flying mammal are very different to the demands on a pelvis in a biped like us. Um, so they can probably get away with a much less stable pelvis than humans would need. Um, but it does suggest that there are other ways in which this problem can be solved by evolution. So, in recent years, a different perspective has come um, regarding the obstetric dilemma. And that, that, that is that it's really a, a variable dilemma. It's not fixed. It's not the outcome of um, long-term evolutionary trends in, in locomotion and head size. But that actually, it's quite sensitive to ecology. So others have suggested this, but this was really developed in a paper by um, Jonathan Wells, Jeremy De Silva, and Jay Stock in 2012. And what they've argued is that the dilemma is indeed variable and sensitive to ecology. And part of the problem is that maternal pelvis size relates to the environment that she grew up in, whereas the fetal size relates to the environment that the fetus experiences. And what can be the issue here is that there's a generation lag between these exposures. So, this can lead to a mismatch between <coughs> fetal and pelvic size. So, if we think about some of the factors driving pelvic morphology, um, maternal development is a very important one, and we've known for a long time that nutritional deficiencies can have an important impact on the maternal pelvic canal. Um, so deficiencies in specific nutrients like vitamin D um, can lead to very severe pelvic deformation and it's thought that this um, was part of the reason why there was such an increase in the need for um, caesarean sections in the uh, late 19th and early 20th century because of rickets, particularly in urban areas in the West. Um, this can lead to malformations of the pelvis but vitamin D deficiency in mothers can also lead to osteomalacia where the bones soften and the pelvic um, canal contracts. However, more general nutritional deficiencies or, or more general environmental stress um, can also relate to pelvic dimensions. So under more environmentally stressful conditions, um, we typically see that people are achieve a shorter stature and that short stature is associated with smaller pelvic dimensions. So here we have some data from um, North American women and different pelvic measurements and how they correlate with stature. So here we have um, the true conjugate diameter. This is a measure of pelvic inlet. Interspinous distance, this is mid-plane. Intertubous distance, this is the um, outlet. And then the area of the inlet and the area of the outlet. And what you'll see is that these do vary in their relationship to height. And they don't really exceed sort of 0.5 to 0.6 at the most, but there is a clear and significant relationship between pelvic morphology and stature. And so shorter maternal stature is likely to elevate the risk of um, obstructed labour. As well as the maternal pelvis being environmentally plastic, the size of the baby at birth is also 
sensitive to environmental conditions. Um, maternal factors are thought to be particularly important here, particularly maternal height and BMI, her metabolism and nutrition, um, for obvious reasons, affecting the nutrient delivery to the baby. But other factors as well. So paternal factors are linked to offspring size, as is environmental temperature. Um, and there are intergenerational effects on sites of birth as well. So the environment of the grandmother affects the development of the mother and her body size, which then has a knock-on effect on that of the offspring as well. And these effects likely have both a genetic basis but also epigenetic basis. So they're inherited across generations through mechanisms which aren't um, typical of uh, transmission of characteristics by DNA. Looking at the relationships between parental and offspring phenotype, um, a year or two ago I did some work looking at um, measurements of newborn babies and their parents from the Mata University um, of Queensland study of pregnancy. And they had very detailed measurements on uh, just over a thousand neonates and their parents. And using a principal components analysis to kind of break this down into what are the key areas of variation in um, neonatal phenotype, um, this basically comes down to three components, head and trunk size, adiposity, fatness, and limb lengths. And head and trunk size seem to relate to maternal height and BMI, adiposity to her BMI, which basically means that how fat the baby is is reflecting the energy availability in the mother, which makes a lot of sense. Whereas limb lengths seem to relate more to paternal characteristics. And these results were consistent with data from the US, the UK, and India, suggesting that head and trunk size do generally seem to reflect maternal size. The fatness relates to BMI. Like I said, there is a logical link there between current nutritional status and energy availability to the baby. And limb links to paternal size. So as these results would suggest, and other data um, hold up, Plasticity varies among traits in the baby. Um, so this shows coefficients of variation, so a measure of how variable characteristics are um, relative to the variability of birth weight. So that would be at 100% there. And what we see is that length of birth and head circumference are much less variable, whereas the fatness of the baby and the circumferences of the abdomen and chest um, are more variable, and particularly the skin folds, so that's subscapular and triceps, how much subcutaneous fat the baby has, um, seems to be particularly variable. This might reflect the fact that brain is protected during fetal development, so if the fetus receives inadequate resources, it channels them into the brain and sacrifices other parts of the body, um, whereas if there's excess resources, it makes the most of those by putting them on as, as body fat. If we look at variation in pelvic dimensions as well, and compare that to what we see in neonates. So we've got pelvic dimensions here in blue, and neonatal head circumference and birth weight in white. You can also see that um, various measures of the pelvic um, canal size are much more variable than neonatal head circumference, and similar to the variation in birth weight. So as I mentioned before, there's quite a lot of variability in pelvic size. One thing that's very important to keep in mind as well is that um, 
We have a growing problem in many parts of the world with a phenomenon known as macrosomia. So this is where the baby has particularly high birth weight. There are various definitions of this. Um, in this figure, it's represented by um, birth weight at 90% or above 90% above the population mean. And this gives you the odds ratio, so how, what increases your risk or decreases your risk if it's less than one of having a very large baby. And two of the key factors here are maternal diabetes and maternal obesity. Again, two things which we know are increasing as problems in uh, many parts of the world today. And this is consistent across different areas of the world, be that Latin America, Asia or Africa. So fetal plasticity and the increasing rates of very large babies might be contributing to the problems that we see at the moment with obstructed labour. So as that figure pointed out, um, the association with maternal diabetes and large baby size is important. And if we look more at the data, the relevant data here, the literature shows that there's associations between maternal fasting glucose, which is a measure of how well her body can control glucose levels, um, and the birth weight, head circumference, and pondral index, so that's how heavy the baby is relative to its length um, in her offspring. Also gestational diabetes, so that diabetes is specifically developed during um, pregnancy, is associated with greater birth weight and body fat in the baby, greater skin folds, again a measure of fatness, wider shoulders, and the evidence is not clear on head breadth, um, but certainly a larger baby in other senses. So this probably is because where maternal glycemic control is poor, there's more glucose available in the bloodstream, and glucose passes very easily across the placenta to the baby, um, so the baby is able to make use of that extra energy and grow larger. Um, hyperglycemia is a significant problem, so high levels of blood glucose during pregnancy. 17% um, of pregnancies worldwide in 2013, and 90% of those cases in low and middle income countries which is also um, an important point to note. Because in low and middle income countries, you're more likely to have women who themselves have experienced a poor environment and have not grown um, as well, so they are shorter. And there's good data to show us that short stature is associated with greater risk of um, gestational diabetes. So these are four studies from the literature. The Odds ratio shown here, so anything above one means that shorter women have a greater risk of gestational diabetes, and these studies come from various parts of the world. The odds ratios vary, but that's probably a reflection of the fact that they use different comparative groups. But the clear message is that shorter women are at higher risk of gestational diabetes, and that in turn can lead to them having larger babies. So it would seem that the real problem in terms of obstructed labour, comes down to conflicting plasticity between <coughs> different characteristics. So, on the one hand, characteristics that are less plastic, like maternal stature and maternal pelvic dimensions, versus others that are more plastic, um, specifically maternal BMI and the birth weight of offspring. So what we see, potentially, is under conditions where stature has decreased, um, such as perhaps a transition to agriculture or economic decline in most, more recent times, 
we see a decrease both in uh, birth weight and return of size. However, with westernization or with economic improvement, these characteristics change at different speeds. And that's where we see an exacerbated risk of obstructed labour. So birth weight and maternal BMI increase because of their greater plasticity much more quickly than do height and pelvic dimensions. Another thing we need to keep in mind um, is that obstructed labour is not just about the head. So there's a lot of emphasis on the, in the um, obstetric dilemma idea about head size and pelvic dimensions. But as um, Rosenberg and Trevathan have pointed out, actually humans have quite wide shoulders as well, and these can often be part of the problem with obstructed labour. Um, for example, with shoulder dystocia. So this figure comes from um, Schultz, and it shows the proportions of humans and then various, the great apes and gibbons, uh, both as newborns and as um, adults. And it's argued that these broad shoulders are part of our ape heritage um, related to climbing and suspensory climbing behaviour, um, but that perhaps they've been maintained in order to provide space for musculature to, make, to hold up a very large head in our own species. Um, this figure is again from Schultz. It's the source of this figure that I showed you earlier, but they use squares to represent the pelvic canal and um, the neonatal uh, head size. But what's important here is I want to make you to notice this line at the side, which represents shoulder breadth, and this horizontal line, which represents the maximum pelvic dimensions of the mother. And what you'll see in modern humans is that this is quite a tight fit again, um, much less so in the great apes. And shoulder dystocia is related also to birth weight. So there's a linear increase in the rates of shoulder dystocia with birth weight. And in non-diabetic mothers, um, the frequency of shoulder dystocia increases from perhaps up to 1.5% in neonates weighing between 2.5 and 4 kilograms, and to between 5 and 9% over 4 kilograms. <coughs> um, shoulder dystocia is associated with macrosomia, although, and while it's common, it's not actually inevitable, um, but there is that relationship between large size at birth and um, problems delivering the shoulders. So, what do we do about obstructed labour then? Well, if we take this model into account, where both maternal development and offspring development um, are affected by ecological stress, um, and it's these effects on the two of them that are important in determining obstructed labour, obviously a good place to start would be targeting maternal development and offspring development. And there are, of course, ways we can do this. So to target maternal development, we can improve the growth and health um, of populations, especially girls. And there's many reasons why this is a positive thing to do, not least because of um, problems in childbirth. However, it's not always straightforward. Secular trends in stature take multiple generations. Um, and also, it's very hard to provide consistently um, improving conditions. In terms of offspring development, um, we've seen how high maternal BMI and poor maternal glycemic control can be very important for um, 
the neonatal size and the risk of having a very large baby. So an obvious way to reduce these risks is to promote healthy lifestyles and pre-pregnancy weight amongst women um, and promote healthy pregnancy weight gain. Again, though, it's not as easy as it sounds. We, we don't actually have a particularly good understanding of what appropriate um, gestational weight gain is. Just to illustrate the point about um, the relationship between the environment and stature, even in fairly contemporary times, um, economic conditions have important impacts on um, maternal size. So the squares represent um, income per capita in sub-Saharan Africa um, from 1950, and the line above it is maternal height for women born in those years. And you can see there's quite a close correspondence. So economic conditions are potentially extremely important. Another interesting suggestion is that there's perhaps a vicious cycle of um, obesity and perhaps obstructive labour as well. So in this study, um, they looked at mothers born large for gestational age, so who were large babies themselves, and they had a significantly increased risk of being obese in all these categories. So this is um, body mass index and different categories of obesity relative to women um, who were born at a normal birth weight. Following on from this, if the mother was both large for gestational age when she was born and has a high BMI, so is obese, her risk of having a large gestational age baby herself was increased by 4 to 15 times. So what we can see here is a vicious cycle developing where then those large gestational baby, age babies are themselves at risk of obesity and so they're more likely to have large babies themselves and so we go on. Interestingly, this study also suggested um, that the biggest increase in the risk of um, large gestational age babies was among mothers who were actually small at birth themselves but then who had a large BMI. So this again is just perhaps the mismatch between environmental conditions between when the mother is born and grows up and when she has her own children um, is particularly key. Another thing that we can consider is rethinking childbirth positions as well. So the classic um, supine position or lithotomy position with the, the feet raised um, became very common in the 19th and 20th centuries uh, in the West and we've kind of um, moved this to other parts of the world as well. But there's been an ongoing critique of this um, and a recognition of the fact that actually this position came about perhaps because it was most convenient for the doctors. Um, in the late 18th and early 19th century, um, births were being more commonly attended by doctors and it's easier for them to see what's going on, the lady in the supine position. But then actually it might not be what's best for both the mother and the baby. If we look at um, evidence of birth position in the past from various sources, what we see is that an upright birth position was um, actually very common, even in Western societies up to um, the early 19th century. This is an example of a, a birthing chair um, where the mother could sit upright. Um, we have examples from uh, ancient Rome, from manuscripts, and even um, 
in contemporary societies, for example in Peru, where the traditional childbirth position is actually um, upright holding onto a rope. And there are initiatives to try and promote this and, and combine this with attendance of um, medical uh, specialists. Just a few more examples, um, some of these are a bit remarkable, um, but again, showing the widespread uh, occurrence and preference, some have argued, for upright labour positions. And why it's very hard to study what's going on with the pelvis actually during labour itself, um, data suggests that being in an upright position increases the dimensions of the pelvic canal by up to 28%. So obviously this could have a major impact on whether or not a woman runs into problem with the baby passing through the pelvic canal. These results here um, come from one particular study that looks at women, um, non-pregnant women, in an MRI, and it looked at the dimensions of their pelvis in the supine position, that's the front row of bars, in the hands knee position, which is illustrated here, and in the squatting position, which we all know what the squat is, um, but you can probably just about see the woman squatting in the machine there. And these are the measurements as we go from left to right, um, illustrated here. And while some measurements didn't vary very much, others, such as the interspinous diameter, there was a massive effect of being in different uh, positions and non-supine positions that increase the size of the birth canal. The literature reports other um, benefits of upright labour, including reduced maternal pain, shorter second stage of labour, um, decreased need for episiotomy, so that's when um, the uh, edge of the vagina has to be cut to allow the baby to um, emerge, um, less need for forceps assistance and perineal tearing. In the newborn, it's associated with decreased incidence of abnormal heart rate um, and of intensive care emissions. However, there are loads of data and the indications are mixed. So some suggest that there is an increased risk of maternal blood loss um, and of second degree lacerations. So perhaps a lateral position, some literature suggests, might be better. And there's no effect on some other outcomes, um, such as the APGAR scores at birth. So in a recent Cochrane review, um, basically, they concluded that the quality of evidence for the benefits of upright labour are currently poor, and this is clearly an area that we need to look at in much more detail before we can offer evidence-based recommendations. Um, another question is, well, can we identify the mothers who are at risk, and then target them for possible intervention or perhaps closer monitoring? Um, recent gu NICE guidelines from 2011 suggest that actually um, either measuring the mother's pelvis or looking at various of her characteristics such as height or shoe size or estimates of fetal size are actually pretty ineffective at predicting who will need emergency C-sections. And this kind of thing is illustrated by this study by Benjamin Tal. So they looked at various maternal measurements um, and found significant associations between emergency C-sections and things like foot length, height, um, hip diameter, estimated fetal weight, and shoulder diameter. However, when they tried to develop a predictive model um, that involved foot length, hip diameter, and estimated fetal weight, this was the best one they could derive from their data, um, it only had a 24% positive predictive value. 
So it wasn't really a reliable predictor of um, when a caesarean section would be necessary. So there are some other options out there in the literature that show potential, but that we need more um, data to really help justify. One might be identifying babies with large head circumference. That's been associated with increased risk of C-section. Fetal disproportion is another potential um, area. So among uh, macrosomic babies, it's been shown that shoulder dystocia um, is more likely where the baby has a small head relative to the circumference of the body. And actually ratios of head size to, of, of parental head size to parental height have been suggested to be um, associated quite strongly with the risk of obstructed labour. Um, so in this study they looked at um, parents and offspring in Ireland and some of the strongest predictors were the head to height ratio of the mother but also of the father. So this is perhaps something else that might be um, investigated. So just to sum up, um, obstructive labour is still a significant temporary problem. Uh, it seems, if we take an evolutionary perspective, that it's not a fixed obstetric dilemma that accounts for this, but that it's actually one that depends on ecology. And this implies um, solutions involving better maternal and fetal growth environments might help reduce <coughs> obstructive labour, that likely we're going to see increases in obstructive labour um, because of increasing rates of maternal obesity um, and diabetes and fetal macrosomia. And this is particularly the case where mothers are already small, such as in low and middle income countries. And that we might perhaps investigate other potential solutions, such as birth position um, and how we might predict obstructed labour better. Okay, thank you very much. <laughs>